Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We're going to catch up today with Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin, who's working on all of the big issues hung up in the Capitol, including legislation she proposes to help ease all the stockpiling that uh, is in the supply chain disruption that we have been experiencing since the pandemic. Then we're going to talk with an MSU professor who says that academia is doing a better job than any of us might think in inspiring thought and intellectual debate rather than coddling the American mind. It's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Right today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. As always, thanks for tuning in. Democratic leaders say they're getting close to a deal on the massive spending bill that they hope to pass through the reconciliation process. That is the rare procedural maneuver that Democrats can use to get spending bills through Congress with a simple majority, which can't be filibustered by Republicans. But it looks like some of the most progressive spending initiatives might be disappearing from that bill in order to hold the Democratic majority together. Meanwhile, we're still dealing with some major economic disruptions due to the pandemic. Supply chain problems are causing product shortages, and the price of some goods and services is absolutely skyrocketing. I don't know if you've gone grocery shopping lately and looked at the bill, but there is a big difference between what you're paying for pretty basic things like bacon or milk right now than what you would have been paying even four or six months ago. So here to talk about all of the issues going on in Washington and what the federal response should look like is Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin. She is a Democrat who represents Michigan 8th Congressional District in Washington. Congresswoman, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. So, uh, as I said in the open, we're starting to see some of the most progressive parts of this reconciliation bill placed on the chopping block. And that happens sometimes as a way of trying to keep everyone together, keep everybody saying that they can uh, cast a vote in favor uh, of the bill. Uh, One example is that paid family leave was originally proposed to last 12 weeks, but now will be shortened to four. I want to get your reaction to that idea first, but then I'd love to have you talk about the process of trying to get a bill passed and keeping your majority intact so that it, in fact, does get the requisite votes. Yeah, well, I would say the process um, is kind of on display for the for the whole world to see, <laughs> it, and uh, it's not my preferred way of doing business. I'm, you know, come from the Pentagon and the CIA, where we don't tend to air our dirty laundry in public, but. Uh, that's unfortunately where we've been. Uh, I will say I do think that when we get certainly the bipartisan infrastructure deal done and then this second human infrastructure bill, I do think we're going to do some transformative things um, like universal pre-K across the country. Mm. What that will do to have kids across the board going into preschool um, will be amazing. Mm-hmm. Child care provisions that will be amazing. On family leave, um, certainly as someone who took unpaid family leave when my mother uh, got sick, Um, A month of family leave paid um, so that you can keep your job and go and take care of an ailing parent or a sick child or um, I think will still be totally different than what we have now um, for most people who have jobs. So, um, you know, I I try to focus on the transformative things that, that hopefully will be in the bill, but I haven't seen the final text either. So I'm waiting to see that before I make any final calls. Mm. So uh, the on the family leave question, d- dive a little deeper into that. 12 weeks to four weeks, pretty dramatic cut. What was it that led uh, to that kind of alteration of that, of that proposal? I, I would love for people to get a sense of essentially how the back and forth here all works. Yeah, well, you know, look, it, it harkens back to when we had President Biden here in, um, in Michigan talking about these bills. Um, I had 30 minutes with him in his car, in his armored vehicle, uh, the beast, they call it. 
And I talked to him about a bunch of things that were really important to me and they're important to others. And that was paying for this thing, right? Really being able to pay for it. So we're not passing debt onto our kids and our grandkids. And when you want to pay for something that's expensive, um, there's a lot of costs associated with that, right? There's, there's a whole conversation to have around, you know, tax policy, et cetera, et cetera. So, There's not a complicated reason why it went from 12 to four weeks um, other than the top line, the cost, was too much in order to to cover with, um, you know, the increases in in revenue collection we're going to have to do. So uh, I want to talk about when President Biden visited Michigan recently. He came to your district. Uh, There's this major union training facility in Howell which served as a great backdrop for his push to pass the infrastructure bill. Uh, talk about what that package specifically would mean for your district and Michigan more broadly. Sure. Well, I think um, it's a traditional infrastructure bill um, with some 21st century tweaks. The traditional stuff, roads, bridges, dams, you know, all the stuff that Michiganders have been um, hoping for in terms of a once-in-a-generation level of investment. It is that once-in-a-generation level of investment. There'll be more money in the next decade coming into our state on infrastructure than most of us have ever seen in our lifetime or will see again. But it also updates it for the modern era. So we'll get $100 million just in the state of Michigan on broadband. We should be able to have broadband internet from the you know furthest corners of southeast Michigan all the way to the western part of the U.P., when we're done with this, if we do strategic investments correctly. So um, it has a, a bunch of things like that. And then a bunch of things that affect our economy in Michigan, you know, electric vehicle infrastructure so that you could drive all the way up north on electric vehicle so that you could drive across the country from Maine to California on an electric vehicle and not worry about charging up. So uh, there's a there, that's the traditional infrastructure bill. Um, that will come in, in in sort of traditional ways through the state and then disseminate it down to our state and lo- or our local officials, our counties, to start working on their projects. So I also want to talk about the climate provisions of um, of, of what's going on and some of the some of the things that that are again falling out of this bill. And I wonder if you find that acceptable. Are we doing enough to combat climate change in this bill if we lose some of those provisions? Yeah, you know, I think that, uh, you know, the, the, the problem that about this bill, or one of the problems about it is that we just really have not been clear about what's in it, what's coming out, what's staying in. Um, and it's true, not everything can stay in a deal. That's the, neg- n- the nature of negotiations. I think what's really um, interesting to me is, like, if you talk to Senator Stabenow, who runs the, ag- you know, the Agriculture Committee, is a full 20% of the carbon reduction that's coming out of this bill is going to come through change and incentivizing different practices through farming. Um, it's, there's plenty of things that still remain on the environmental side. It's not everything, but nobody gets everything in a deal. Do we need to take significant um, action to deal with climate change? Every Michigander this summer knows what it's like to have more storms and increase in storms and increase in the veracity of those storms. And we're doing a ton on preparedness now um, in this bill. Um, it's not everything that we wanted, but I don't think we should say that there's nothing left for the environment in this bill. Mm. I'm talking with Congresswoman Alyssa Slock, and she is a Democrat who represents Michigan's 8th Congressional District in Washington. We're talking about all the things going on right now in Washington, this effort to get some major pieces of legislation passed that would really make a change in significant areas of American life. Uh, We'd love to hear from you. Uh, What questions do you have for Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin, who is uh, part of the process in Washington, trying to figure these things out and get them passed? What do you think of the direction that these massive spending bills in Congress are taking? Uh, Do you think it'll be acceptable if the final bill doesn't include some of the more progressive provisions that were proposed? Things like cutting family leave from 12 weeks to four. Uh, things like uh, taking some of the climate uh, provisions out of the bill. Do you think even if we have to do those things, if we can get Congress uh, to accept this and get the president to sign it, that we will have 
accomplish something significant uh, in terms of uh, fixing some of the problems that we have in our country. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also uh, go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Um, David on Twitter asks uh, whether you can comment, uh, Rep Slotkin, on why it's so hard to find a trillion dollars for the infrastructure bill compared to the additional trillion dollars of defense spending recently passed by Congress over for over the next 10 years. Uh, great question, though, the, the way that we set priorities in Washington. Uh, can yeah. you explain that? Yeah, I mean, certainly. I think there's um, always going to be a conversation when it comes to our budget because the Defense Department is, I think, the most significant uh, portion of our national budget, for sure. Um, I think one of the things that has a lot of people worried here in the United States or in the Washington, I should say, um, is our ability to keep up with China and the additional investment. I, it, was, it was not a trillion dollars, but the additional investment um, that's being made in the Defense Department budget is related specifically to competing and keeping trying to keep our military edge over China. Um, it, it's pretty amazing. Most people um, in the national security world are concerned that we're going to lose our military superiority potentially in the ne- next decade. And no one alive, not one of us alive, has been in a world where the United States is not the military, you know, dominant military actor. So that, that's certainly where it comes from. Um, but you're right. It's just uh, there is more consensus, I think, around supporting the Defense Department budget than there is around new and bold programs. Mm. And part of that is building that, uh, that case, building that support from the public. Again, we haven't done it in the, in the most effective way on this bill, um, and that's on us. Um, but it is, uh, that is sort of the facts of the situation. So, so I, I want to go back to your explanation of, of the defense spending for a second. Um, the idea that China could surpass the United States in terms of uh, investment and, and therefore dominance in a military context, uh, I, I think for a lot of people, that's an abstract concept. What difference does it make to the average American if yeah. China is somehow more powerful than the United States. Can you, can you talk about that for just a second? Sure, sure. Yeah, that's, a, that's an important question. So I think right now, much of the sort of, um, you know, the, the rogue actors in the world, the bad behavior um, by different countries is largely, largely, not always, but largely kept at bay because they know that the United States has the ability to, you know, be dominant if they actually, for instance, with Iran or North Korea and certainly with China, it's the same, it's the same way. They, um, they have understood for the past 60 years that we could beat them if we had to get into a fight. And now they are questioning that. They are testing the boundaries. They are doing all kinds of things to sort of test the fences, as it were. Um, and they're investing in technology that meant if we got into a fight, they could, you know, have us go blind and deaf. They could hit our satellites. They could do a lot of things that would undercut our traditional military might. Now, when that is a, is a, a fact that's understood, at least by one party, then they get much more aggressive. They get aggressive in um, what they do militarily, how they treat their neighbors, but they also get more aggressive in their, what is already going on, their cheating in the economic system, um, their violation of norms and standards, human rights. They do all kinds of things that, uh, that certainly could go unpunished, um, if they just decided and we sort of understood that they had a military advantage. That means, uh, you know, we're already complaining in Michigan about how China cheats and doesn't live up to international norms and standards that would get worse. They would become more aggressive. The likelihood of a conflict would go up. Um, and those are the kinds of things that would be a major, major suck on our economy. So um, it's, a, it's a, a new world that I hope to not see. Um, but it would have particularly economic consequences back home. Yeah. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here uh, on the phones. If you'd like to ask a, a question of uh, Representative Alyssa Slotkin, um, I, I want to talk just a little about this national uh, stockpile and mm-hmm. uh, your efforts and your focus on 
beefing up the national stockpile so that some of the supply chain problems that we're seeing right now might not be as uh, acute as uh, as they will. Last week, your bill did pass the House with overwhelming uh, bipartisan support. Talk about what it would do. Sure. So uh, this supply chain bill um, and strategic national stockpile bill came directly from the searing experience we all had in Michigan when COVID really began. And we all remember those really horrible stories of nurses and doctors just begging for masks and gowns and gloves, people going out and wearing construction equipment and scuba equipment and sharing masks on a COVID ward. Um, And when we opened the strategic national stockpile, this big reserve of exactly that kind of equipment, that kind of PPE, um, I know that Michigan was expecting a much bigger portion than what we got. And what we did get was often expired and in some cases moldy. So this was this bill was born of that experience, and it basically refashions our strategic national stockpile so that, A, it's more transparent. Michigan will always know what we're getting. B, they can the stockpile managers can sell off stuff before it becomes expired so that we can always keep it fresh, not moldy. And then number three, the most important thing, it pilots a $500 million program to have American manufacturers make that PPE, right? Mm. Incentivize American companies to keep making masks and gowns so that we're not dependent on China for things that, that are equivalent to body armor in America's latest war. Mm. So I also want to talk to you about the redistricting process, yep. which has gotten a lot of people's attention, including yours. Uh, oh, so yeah. on some of the maps that uh, have been drawn, you would not uh, you would not be able to run in the current district that you are. I, I, of course, you can. I mean, you can run for Congress from from <laughs> anywhere. But uh, you've said that you would uh, you would move uh, to the Lansing area to run for a new seat that's going to be centered in that part of the state. I, I think that's going to be a pretty highly contested seat, maybe one of the closest in the whole nation, even though the district doesn't actually exist yet. I think we can we can make that kind of prediction. Uh, talk about that kind of choice, though, that kind of personal choice that you end up having to make uh, because of the way that, uh, <laughs> that they've decided to, to carve up our districts. Yeah, well, we all voted in a citizens commission back um, in 2018. This is the first time we've ever had it. And it's done its job. It really has, you know, taken comment from the public and reorganized uh, the districts. Right now, I represent two and a half districts or two and a quarter districts, the quarter being (laughs) Oakland County. Um, And the new district uh, would be a Lansing based district, but would have two of those two and a quarter counties still in it. Uh, you know, right now my congressional headquarters is in Lansing. My campaign headquarters is in Lansing. So this would mean a move for me uh, from my uh, farm in Holly, Michigan to Lansing. Always a hard thing to do, and we're not going to get rid of the family farm. But um, I think it's important that ultimately wherever I run, I live. I think that's important. And listen, a lot of my fellow members of Congress, Democrats and Republicans, are all facing similar issues. There's a lot of us who are uh, waiting with bated breath to see what's going to happen. Um, but, uh, um, you know, you gotta, you got to be able to roll with it. And, and certainly, uh, as I understand it, the new district will be just as competitive as my current one and certainly the most competitive one in the state of Michigan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I quickly want to take a call before I know we have to let you go, Alyssa. Chris in Southfield. Chris, what's on your mind? Hey, thanks a lot for having me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I used to work for the Detroit Arsenal. I was a um, I was a contract specialist. I bought military equipment, and we're talking about the defense budget. We're talking about you know government spending. When I was in that in that role, I saw a lot of a lot of waste, and I'm wondering, mm-hmm. you know, what are your thoughts on how we can reduce waste in the government procurement process? Mm. Great question, Chris. Thanks very much for that. Uh, go ahead, Alyssa. That is a great question. And as someone who worked at the Pentagon, I can tell you firsthand, there is definitely fat on that bone. I mean, for sure. Actually, I was so concerned about it that I I got a bipartisan amendment passed so that the Pentagon literally has to do an annual report on, I call it pork, you know, the programs that are there because they're legacy systems, because someone in Congress wants them to continue, uh, because they're someone's favorite pet rock. Um, and we got that passed, and I'm hoping that within a year we will have that uh, that program or that pro- that report 
so that we can actually see the scale of what uh, the caller was talking about. It, it, it is there is no way that the Defense Department budget should be such a significant portion of our national budget. And we can't take a really, really careful eye to cutting that fat. Um, absolutely. And we but we first have to understand the full scale of it. So that's what we've started to do. Yeah. Okay, uh, Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin, it's always great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks very much for joining Thanks us. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Okay, we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, the growing animosity against academics and researchers and the way that MSU political scientist Matt Grossman is pushing back. He says in his new book that the social sciences have been getting better with less bias, evidence, diversity, and self-reflection. Will that help improve our politics and our society? We're going to talk about it next. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. These days, universities are often hotbeds of controversy. And of course, much of that criticism has come from those on the right, claiming that universities are too often spaces for safety and shelter rather than intellectual exploration and dynamic scholarship. We even hear that from some liberal professors Uh, inside universities. They believe that scholars from both public and private institutions are contributing untrue or even slightly untrue claims from their research because they are afraid of the consequences of publishing the unvarnished but potentially hurtful results. In the words of one academic, the American mind is being coddled. But that's not the view of everyone in academics. In his new book, How the Social Sciences Got Better, Michigan State University professor Matt Grossman argues that knowledge produced by those in higher ed has improved, not degraded, over time. Data is more accessible. Cross-disciplinary approaches are more common. Diversity of belief and background are more robust, and casual inferences or suggestions of truth have gotten sharper. In other words, the social sciences are improving. And the academic information we digest is more nuanced, accurate, and humble in its claims. Truth-seeking has become more rigorously contested, and those who partake in it have a broader mindset, not a more closed one. This debate has been deeply inflected in journalism, too, as it negotiates broad claims on truth. How do we know what we know? How certain can we be about information? And what constitutes the boundaries of our knowledge and our exchanges? That's where we want to continue the conversation here on Detroit Today. And I want to welcome Matt Grossman, political science professor at Michigan State University and director of the Institute for Public Policy and Social Research to the program. Matt, welcome back to Detroit Today. Good morning. Good to be with you. So start with an overview of what it is that the social sciences are trying to do, acknowledging that anthropology, for instance, is different from political science or sociology, uh, what are the aims of these disciplines and how do they go about achieving those goals? Well, they're trying to understand human interactions and the development of human societies. Uh, I do study five very large disciplines, uh, including those uh, you mentioned, uh, as well as uh, psychology, 
uh, and economics. So it is uh, going to be difficult to put them all into one box, um, but they are all seeking to uh, investigate variation in human behavior uh, across time and, and places and investigate uh, potential changes uh, with the hope of uh, in instilling improvements in human societies. So one of your points is that the social sciences have become more precise and empirical and less theoretical, specifically as it relates to the use of randomized control trials and access to bigger data points. Uh, can you explain how that's happening and, and why that matters to both the academic uh, setting itself and to the, the, the general public who I think seek to, to, to have some benefit from mm -hmm. academic pursuit? That's right. Uh, both uh, across uh, social sciences, uh, social scientists themselves agree that uh, the disciplines are becoming uh, more empirical and less theoretical, uh, more have better causal inferences uh, and not just uh, description. Uh, and uh, have access to more and better data. Uh, and there's a lot of evidence uh, of that even in the uh, even in the media world that you inhabit. We're seeing more uh, charts and graphs, uh, more attention uh, to uh, data and the problems that uh, come with it. Uh, and so all of that is uh, both in academia itself, uh, leading uh, to claims that are uh, less uh, global and uh, eternal and more specific uh, to the context where we have evidence. Uh, and then I think that is translating uh, to uh, more uh, careful uh, journalism uh, about the kinds of claims that can come out of academia and how they might inform our public debates. And talk about the climate then in academia and the way, I guess, that you're saying it has changed and how that bumps up against, I think, what many people think about academia. We do hear a lot of criticism of academic environments uh, these days for the idea of closed-mindedness, of protection of people's feelings uh, in some cases at the expense of intellectual uh, exchange. You, you are kind of laying out a very different vision of what is going on in academia and, and, and how it affects, again, those inside and outside. I am, but I do want to separate a little bit that um, those kinds of, of trends and how people are, are feeling and in uh, internal political diversity could um, be co-occurring with improvements uh, in uh, data analysis. Um, so they don't necessarily trade off with each other. Um, but yes, academia is uh, slowly diversifying uh, internally with regard to uh, both uh, race and gender internally and internationalizing so that we're a better representative of uh, the world. Um, but there are, of course, places where we're not uh, very representative. Obviously, we are uh, more educated at a time when education is becoming an increasing political divide. And uh, we are overwhelmingly uh, liberal uh, on the traditional uh, ideological uh, spectrum. And that's true not just in the United States, uh, but in other developed countries as well. Academia stands out. Um, so the debate uh, will be familiar uh, to uh, those in the media because it's the same type of debate we're having uh, about journalism. Uh, can a group that is disproportionately Democrats and, and liberals um, but aspires uh, to uh, uh, investigate uh, the world uh, fairly and impartially, uh, can it do so? Uh, and uh, the answer is yes, but it requires um, a close uh, attention to how our uh, own uh, political and demographic biases uh, are likely to affect the kinds of questions that we ask uh, and our interpretations of the answers that we get. Mm. And that diversity that you're speaking of is part of what the backlash is too, correct? I mean, people, there is this, uh, I think, discomfort in parts of academia about the way it's changing. No question, but I think here uh, there is a sort of a difference between uh, how academia is publicly perceived and what's going on uh, within it. So, for example, there's a lot of attention to uh, race and gender studies and intersectionality as the sort of a, a vague idea about the intersections of, of various identities. Um, but within academia, we're seeing all kinds of progress uh, at uh, trying to figure out what, uh, in what context uh, does being an African-American male specifically lead to uh, uh, problems uh, in uh, the way that they uh, interact in society? In what cases is 
uh, being a, a lesbian white woman specifically different uh, than uh, uh, other uh, intersections. So um, it's not just sort of a, a theoretical idea. It's actually something that people have taken to heart and investigated variation uh, with uh, very precise uh, measures of uh, both who people think that think of themselves as being and how that affects uh, their daily life. So we're, we're making uh, progress even in these uh, corners of academia where you might think uh, that we're subject uh, to political correctness or uh, having trouble um, uh, uh, be conducting our studies without outside interference. Hmm. I'm talking with Matt Grossman. He's a political science professor at Michigan State University and the director of the Institute for Public Policy and Social Research. He's also the author of a new book called How the Social Sciences Got Better. We're talking about social science in the academic context, uh, uh, the disciplines that uh, are supposed to challenge us to think differently about the world around us, uh, to help us understand deeper meanings about the world around us and how they're being affected by uh, the growing diversity in academia, uh, but also how they are having maybe a different effect on the conversations we have outside of academia. Also, how they get us closer to or maybe further away from the ability to discern the difference between truth and falsity, the idea of how we know what we know and how certain we can be about the information that we take in. We'd love to have you as part of the conversation as well. Uh, what do you think will help solve our current struggles to understand and agree on what's true and what's factual? Do you think academia has helped or hurt those efforts? And how have the social sciences, the work of history or political science or psychology, for example, changed your life? How often do you interact with the ideas that emerge from the study of these disciplines, either in school, at work, via journalism, or just by doing your own research. How much of the social sciences impacted your understanding of our current moment, including the pandemic, the January 6th insurrection, reactions to climate change, and broad cultural change? Also want to broaden the conversation out a little bit to talk about journalism. Uh, what role do you think journalism is playing in helping us to discern truth and what's false? Uh, what about the expansion of journalism, the number of voices that are out there uh, who have access to be able to distribute things to people in ways that they couldn't just five or ten years ago? Uh, how do we make sure that everyone is following the same standards when it comes to truth and falsity? How good a job do you think journalism and journalism institutions and organizations are doing at helping us to discern uh, truth and uh, false? Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Matt, I want to talk about uh, chapter four in your book where you give an example of three scholars who tried to prove that academic thinking had become lazy because every paper and article has become about identity politics. Uh, talk about what those scholars tried to do and how they were proven wrong. Well, they uh, submitted uh, a lot of uh, fake academic uh, papers uh, that uh, sort of conformed uh, to uh, liberal ideas about identity politics taken to their uh, extreme. Um, probably the most famous one was about rape culture in dog parks, uh, where they supposedly uh, observed uh, human-dog uh, interaction. Um, and they got some of them published, uh, so the, the uh, sort of uh, attempt to spoof uh, succeeded in that respect. But analyses after the fact have shown that they had a lot of trouble getting in social science journals. Uh, they had um, more trouble getting in uh, better journals. Uh, their, their route to success was mainly through making up data, not uh, through uh, the theoretical claims themselves. <laughs> uh, and the process um, actually uh, improved the interpretations of the fake data. So they released the 
uh, feedback that they got. And uh, you could see uh, the improvements in how they were interpreting what turned out to be fake data. So I think overall we can we can agree with the with the uh, spoofers or the fraudsters uh, that um, you know these papers would have had a tougher time if they were say anti-feminist rather than fe feminist in sort of uh, getting a fair hearing in academia. I think that's true, um, but I think it mainly showed uh, that even in these uh, even in the sort of most bizarre corners of social sciences, uh, you still need to bring data to the table and you're still going to be judged mainly uh, on how well you are describing and interpreting uh, that information. Hmm. Uh, can you talk about the polarization, I guess, that I think defines a lot of academic environments like right now? I mean, you think of uh, the, that kind of experiment and what inspires it. I mean, there is a real tension between um, uh, between various factions in, in academia about what is happening and why it's happening and what effects it's having. I, I wonder if you can kind of just, just assess uh, that environment and, and whether it is healthy, I guess, a, a healthy debate about, about the value of academia, or is it a kind of destructive um, conflict that makes it harder to, to make progress on the things that uh, we're talking about? Well, within academia, I actually think uh, conflict has uh, declined. Um, a social scientist that I uh, surveyed and interviewed uh, perceived uh, de declining uh, conflict over things like the nature-nurture debate or qualitative versus quantitative uh, research strategies. Um, so there's a sort of a more willingness to kind of take from all uh, sides, uh, theoretically and empirically within academia. But obviously, we are just like journalists in a political environment, which is uh, increasingly polarized. And I take quite seriously the view that because uh, we're disproportionately liberals that we're going to sort of leave out uh, certain kinds of, of questions. But even there, when I investigate uh, the kinds of complaints that are made uh, by conservative commentators, what I usually find is that the examples that they give uh, turn out to be examples of success. Uh, so one of the most common ones, for example, is that early studies of divorce uh, in sociology uh, were quite positive uh, about uh, their outcomes. Uh, and conservatives said, well, you're not really considering outcomes for children as much as the, the individuals that uh, went through uh, the divorce. And the, the trajectory of that research agenda is that there were a lot more studies of the effects of divorce on children, and they were quite negative in all kinds of outcomes. Uh, so uh, th that wasn't sort of some kind of hidden or off-limits knowledge. It was knowledge that was brought to the fore by a reasonable critique of existing research uh, that then led to uh, more uh, a broader set of conclusions. Again, 313-577-1019 uh, is the number here on the phones. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Matt Grossman, and we're going to get to your calls and your social media comments. Jimmy Algonac, Stephen Windsor, we'll hear from you next. As uh, Again, if you want to join them on the phones, 313-577-1019 is the number. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there, and uh, we'll include you in the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Today on 1019 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. My guest is Matt Grossman. He's a political science professor at Michigan State University and the director of the Institute for Public Policy and Social Research. He's the author of a new book called How the Social Sciences Got Better, and it's a look at how uh, the disciplines that help us understand the world around us have changed uh, to be sharper, to be more challenging, uh, and to be more focused on uh, a refined search for the difference between truth and falsity. Uh, we're talking about how that happened, uh, what effect it's had on academia, and what effect it has on us as Americans in our own struggles to try to define 
truth uh, in an age where there is more information available than ever before, but there's also uh, more false information out there than there ever was. We want to hear from you about how all this plays out in your life, the struggle between truth and falsity. Uh, Do you see it playing out in academia? And uh, are the social sciences one way that you try to understand uh, how we should be approaching these these kind of things and these controversies. Uh, also, we want to hear what you think about journalism and the role that journalists play in all of these tensions. Uh, is journalism doing a good enough job at helping you to understand what's true and what's not? 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there. Or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work into the conversation. Let's start with Jimmy in Algonac. Jimmy, what's on your mind? Hello, how are you? Good, how are you? Um, I'm doing fine. Just comment on social media and the prevalence of social media. And if you look back in history, you know, take, for example, World War One. you got your news a week late, and it was in the newspaper. World War Two, it was the radio, often from the front line. The Vietnam War was by TV. So where I'm coming with this is that your news now, these broadcast news like Fox News, CNN, they're finding it very difficult to sell airtime unless they're very controversial. And I think that's what drives a lot of the polarization because they can't compete with uh, social media, for example. Uh, on journalists, you asked how are journalists doing? Mm-hmm. And if you remember back in the day, you know, a journalist had to make sure that his story was corroborated before he could print. Uh, With social media and the fake news that's out there, you can put out whatever you want. Uh, The Internet provider is not responsible for the content. So people can put out fake news and there's no consequence. So as an example, if you look at, you know, FDR, he had polio and it was never mentioned it was just one of those things that the sure. journalists didn't have to talk about because they could sell newspapers and they could sell uh, based on facts. They didn't have to dig for the dirt to be able to sell airtime or newspapers. And I think that's what's driving a lot of the polarization today, particularly, you know, when I flick all the news channels, I switch from Fox to CNN, and it amazes me the difference between the two channels. And they're obviously geared towards their own audience. They're mm-hmm. not particularly interested in, <laughs> sometimes they are, but they're not particularly interested in the truth. Mm. The other thing is, a lot of these guys are talking heads on TV. They're not journalists. They're talk show hosts. Sure. And, and there's you know, a difference. You can spot the journalists. Yeah, there is a difference. Talk show hosts. Uh, Jimmy, I really appreciate uh, the call and the, the, the really interesting insights into especially journalism. Uh, Mac Rosman, react to to what he's saying here. Well, it certainly is true that uh, information uh, moves uh, faster and we have access uh, to more uh, than we have ever had before. And that means that uh, there's a sort of a less of a gatekeeping uh, function of the, the traditional media. Um, but uh, social science on this topic has uh, tended to Uh, show that uh, our concerns are a bit overblown with things like uh, complete uh, fake news. For example, all of the uh, studies of the 2016 uh, election, uh, which showed that it was a pretty small number of the very already convinced uh, people who were accessing uh, that information, uh, and that most uh, knowledge uh, of the the candidates uh, and the campaign uh, came from originally from traditional uh, media sources. Uh, So if you look at uh, what uh, Uh, people who actually made a decision on the basis of their information received. It was often from originally from the decisions uh, made by the traditional newspapers and television networks, uh, even in the online context. Uh, So it's not that we shouldn't be worried about these trends, um, but we we shouldn't uh, overstate them. The other big thing I always want to tell people who are ensconced in uh, media system and, and, and listening to shows like Detroit Today is that there's a lot of people who are not paying much 
much attention. Uh, and actually, the proliferation of information uh, has actually allowed a lot more people to tune out uh, to choose sports and entertainment over news uh, in ways that they they didn't used to have that uh, opportunity. Mm-hmm. So while some of us are watching repeatedly and all of the channels, uh, a lot of people are never clicking on uh, those uh, stories or those channels. Um, and so that's a, another big piece of what's going on is information polarization, not in the sense of left and the right, but in the sense of people who are hyper-informed and paying attention to everything on a daily basis and people who uh, are tuning most of it out. Yeah, I mean, that that idea of the polarization of interest is is the thing that I think is is largely responsible for people not having kind of basic information about about some things that that, that go on in the news world I, there's I wonder, also yeah go ahead there's always there's also been just a tremendous nationalization so if you ask people you know do they know who the vice president is uh, that has actually gone up uh, in uh, public opinion polls but if you ask people who their governor is hmm. uh, or who their local officials are all of that has gone down uh, and the reason is we used to have uh, these this reliance on this traditional local media um, that that we just don't have anymore. Uh, people, the, the the people who are interested in news are mainly interested in national news, uh, and so that drives the kind of information we receive. Again, Jimmy, thanks very much for the call and the comments. Let's go to Steve in Windsor. Steve, what's on your mind? Hello. Um, <clears throat> what concerns me about the media, and I'm not a trained researcher, but when I Google. It seems the great bulk of the media that we have access to these days is owned by maybe three or four really large companies. And it seems as though the the point of view that's uh, put forth is monolithic. Mm. Now, let me say that I'm to the right of yourself, but I have a great deal of respect for your presentation and the thought that goes in your program. And I'm not here to advocate. It just, it concerns me, Hmm. the absolute concentration of power and the fact that they all seem to be saying the same thing. Of course, there's Fox, but I don't like them either. They're so far (laughs) to the other side. If you think back to the 60s, you'd watch the Today Show, NBC. The guys that were reporting, and the girls, were... You felt like you were getting news you could trust. And I don't want to sound like somebody wearing a tinfoil hat, but I am not comfortable that when I listen to broadcast or print media that I'm from either side, that I'm really getting Hmm. just facts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So, Steve, I mean, I first want to say that I I appreciate that that you listen and that – I hope you find value in what we're doing here on Detroit Today. And, and of course, we are always trying to represent a really broad spectrum of ideas and, and points of view. But I agree with you that it's hard to, to find a lot of media sources that, that you can trust are, are doing things that way. I think it is harder to do things that way than it, than it used to be as well. And that's another that's another subject, I guess. But but Matt Grossman, talk about, I guess, the way in which social sciences influence what Steve is talking about, the, 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 the sharpening of uh, debate and research in social science, I guess, in the ideal, would help solve some of what Steve is, is pointing out. Uh, it would, but the solution is always uh, obviously the most difficult part. I do think um, that it's an advance just to track it. So just to um, point to a few things that, that Steve said, we do have evidence that uh, trust in the media is declining over time. Uh, that uh, trust is uh, declining mainly among people who uh, identify as conservatives uh, and uh, that it is associated with a lot of elite rhetoric uh, on the Republican side uh, that uh, was uh, in some ways designed uh, to reduce trust uh, in uh, the media. Uh, in addition, we have some evidence that some of the basic concerns uh, are uh, that conservatives have about media are accurate. So uh, reporters are disproportionately uh, liberals and Democrats, uh, and if anything, are moving more in that direction. And those same two trends are true in academia. So we're subject to uh, some of the, the similar uh, kinds of, of evidence. Uh, we also know, though, that uh, people 
people's perceptions of the media are affected by their own political predispositions. So it turns out that uh, both Republicans and Democrats think Facebook is uh, biased against uh, their party. Uh, people watching the very same uh, mainstream media news clips um, from different parties come away believing that it is more favorable toward the other side, uh, even though obviously it objectively uh, couldn't couldn't uh, be true of both of those uh, both of those perceptions. So some of the the change uh, could be uh, real. There are real changes in, uh, so for example, the trends uh, toward more. Uh, interpretive uh, journalism uh, rather than sort of uh, just the facts mentality. Uh, we can observe that in uh, journalism over time. Um, but some of them are in our own uh, understanding of the world. We have become more partisan and more ideological over time. And thus we often perceive uh, even neutral uh, news and commentary as being biased against our perspective. Yeah. Okay. Matt Grossman, it was really great to have you here. Uh, to talk about this subject and your new book. Thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today. Thank you. It's going to do it for us today. Uh, I want to thank uh, Sam Corey, our student intern, for his help with the show today. Good job again, Sam, with uh, the producing around here. Uh, also, come back tomorrow when I'm going to talk with linguist John McWhorter about his new book, Woke Racism, How a New Religion Has Betrayed Black America. We'll also hear a counterpoint to McWhorter's ideas from writer Damon Young, who has a really different take on what many people are calling woke culture. Really interesting debate that we will have on the show here tomorrow. Detroit Today is produced by Jake Neer. Our program director is Joan Isabella. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. And our associate producers are Nora Ryan and Sam Corey. Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bobian and by Will Sessions. This is, this is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.